In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For 40 days after his resurrection, our Lord Jesus appeared to over 500 people. He was seen by them, heard by them, touched by them, and he ate with them. These 500-plus people were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And it is, in one way or another, that their word and testimony comes to us 2,000 years later. Among these 500-plus people were disciples who initially rejected the claims of the resurrection. A disciple named Thomas, who insisted that unless he touched Jesus' wounds, he would never be convinced. A man named James, who was an unbeliever, and who had at one time thought that Jesus was out of his mind. A man named Paul, who so opposed Jesus, he had attempted to eradicate all who followed him. All of these were changed by their encounter with Jesus. All of them were convinced that he had truly risen from the dead. They were willing to be ridiculed and imprisoned and tortured, and yes, even put to death, rather than deny him. A recent article of the BBC has the headline, Christian Persecution at Near Genocide Levels. Dear friends, that should put some things in perspective. How shall we not be ashamed in the presence of the martyrs, we who in perfect freedom and safety could not be troubled to take our faith a little bit more seriously or draw nearer to Christ. All too often we do not have in mind those things that are above. In the account given by the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus says to his disciples, or Jesus comes to his disciples and shows himself yet one more time. And John's account of this event is both straightforward and evocative. On the one hand, it's a simple record of what happened and should be read as such. On the other hand, the words and images that John chooses to use bring to mind so many of the major themes of his gospel. There's a sea and a boat. There are seven disciples on the boat. Why are they fishing? Have they returned in some way to their old mode and manner of life? Or is there some symbol here of the church? Or perhaps of the church in her labors without the help of Christ. In the dark, in the night, the disciples labor and fish in futility, and they return with their net empty. At dawn, just as the sun is rising, just as the light of day is breaking forth, Jesus stands on the shore calling to them. They do not yet know who he is. Though they are grown men, he calls them children. You don't have any fish, do you, he says. No, they respond. Maybe it takes a fisherman to know how that question can hurt. And as silly as it may sound, how deep that question can go. No, we've got no fish. Zero, zilch, none. Thanks for asking. All our labor was in vain. We couldn't accomplish this one simple task. We tried everything and have nothing to show. It was meaningless and though we pretend otherwise, embarrassing. If it's been a while since you've been fishing, you should go. Fishing in futility is a microcosm of life. Getting skunked is the curse. 
and then being asked how many fish you caught is the law. And saying at the end that it doesn't really matter because after all you enjoyed the scenery is a bit like having one of those terrible celebrations of life instead of a proper funeral. It's a lie. We wouldn't be celebrating a life if not for the death. And I wasn't out there sitting in nature just to enjoy it. I was fishing, and now I have no fish. I was precisely as effective at catching fish as a dead person. A microcosm of life indeed. I was a father, but not a very good father. I was a mother, and in many ways failed as a mom. I was a child of God, who kind of stunk at being a child of God. I was a fruit tree that, bear, that bore precious little fruit. I never accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I was a fisherman with no fish. Unknown to them on the shore, the figure says, children, you have no fish, do you? Then he does for them what they could not do. He fills their nets for them. He fulfills the law for them. He lifts the curse for them. He renders all their futile labors worthwhile and worth it. And with a word, he prospers the work of their hands. The futile night becomes a bountiful day. The empty net is full to the point of breaking, but it does not break. And the disciple whom Jesus loved suddenly realized that it was the Lord. Realizing that it was Jesus on the shore, Peter does what one might expect Peter to do. He throws himself into the sea. He jumps into the water to reach Jesus first, the Lord whom he had loved and betrayed and loved once more. Over the side of the boat he goes, as when he tried to walk on water to his Lord. Into the deep he goes, reminiscent of baptism, of a death and burial and resurrection. Out of the sea and onto dry land, Peter is about to be forever changed. On the land, they see a charcoal fire in place. But why is it that John mentions that detail, that bit about the charcoal fire? Because it was by a charcoal fire that Peter had denied Jesus. And now, by this charcoal fire, Peter will be restored by Jesus. Jesus already had fish for them and bread. Miraculous fish and miraculous bread, just like the feeding of the 5,000. A feeding that would lead Jesus to preach that he is the true bread of life, that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has life, and Jesus will raise him on the last day. It is indeed evocative imagery that John has chosen. Does Jesus also call to us from a distant shore? Does he also say to us, follow me. Follow me in making the good confession, in bearing witness to the truth, in being light in the darkness. Follow me in the way of faithfulness, which is certainly also the way of suffering and death, but also resurrection. For the servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they will also hate you. Follow me. I will render your empty nets full to the point of bursting and turn your futile labors into an eternal weight of glory. At my speaking, the futility and darkness will turn to prosperity and day. 
I will call you from the chaotic waters to the peaceful shore. Your cold and tired soul will find rest beside my fire. Rest and absolution, restoration and friendship. In me, you will find the love that you have always been searching for. I render all that was meaningless, meaningful. So take heart, be of good cheer. Your labors and your life are not in vain, for I have redeemed you. With my own blood I have bought you. With my own death I have given you life. By my rising you are justified, righteous in God's sight. How did it feel for those seven disciples to sit with their risen Lord around the fire? It must have felt like a foretaste of heaven. And that is precisely what they needed. And it is also precisely what we need in order to face the struggles, the labors, the futility, and the meaninglessness that threaten to overcome us every day. We need to know that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is in control, and we need to know that Jesus does indeed care for us, and that he will, in a profound way, do for us what he did for his disciples that day. He will fill our empty nets. He will transform our futile fishing into an unimaginable bounty. There is also this curious aspect of the risen Jesus. Maybe you've noticed it. The risen Jesus was not always recognizable to his disciples. If you recall in the garden, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him, but thought him to be the gardener. Only when he spoke did she, did he, uh, excuse me, did she know. The same was true for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize Jesus either. Only when he took the bread and blessed it and broke it did they know. So too here in the Tiberius account, the seven on the boat do not know that it's Jesus on the shore. And only when he fills their net do they know. And when the disciples gather around him beside the sea, John says, none of the disciples dared ask him who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Again, they don't recognize him except by what he has done for them, and especially in gathering them together around him to eat. This teaches us two things. In the first place, we do not recognize Jesus, though he is truly in our midst. And yet we do know that it is him because of what he does for us, washing our sins away in baptism, forgiving us in absolution, calling us to eat his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins at his table. We don't recognize him, but we know he is truly here because of what he says and does. And in the second place, we see that Jesus himself has changed after his resurrection. He is no longer how he once was. Now, it is indeed truly his body that was crucified that is now risen. He shows them his hands and his side. There's no doubt about that. And yet, while it is the same body, it is also different. He is now glorified. He is the firstborn of the dead. 
He is not exactly as we are, but more precisely, he is exactly what we shall become. To this point, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Likewise, St. Paul writes, and this is a long quote, bear with me, but it is well worth it. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And St. Paul continues, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, though it is indeed these bodies of ours that will rise, they will rise in such a way that they are profoundly different. You might think of the difference between, between a seed and a tree. The seed goes into the ground and becomes a tree. The seed is the tree, and yet how much greater is the tree? As the seed is, so are these bodies. As the tree is, so will our raised bodies be. The same, and yet profoundly more. We will both be recognizable and unrecognizable. Now, why does the Bible bother teaching us about such abstract and impractical theology, so disconnected from our everyday lives? Well, because it's neither abstract nor impractical, nor is it disconnected from our everyday lives, not in the least. The Bible teaches us these things so that our hearts may be set on what is above, which is of the utmost value and importance. So that, as the scriptures say, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? so that we might have our minds set not on the frivolous and decadent things that take us away from Christ and make us less serious about following Jesus, so that we might have our minds set not on the passing sorrows and the frustrations and the futility of this world, so that we might have our minds set on what is real, 
on what is eternal, on what is just around the corner, when morning dawns and Christ calls to us from the shore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.